We would like to thank you all for supporting Behind the Smoke podcast. Here are some of the memorable moments from 2018. Podcast 37, Jack Harris. When you become a father, every single time you look at your children, whether it's a girl or a boy, you see a reflection of yourself and your wife and exactly what Derek's talking about is what do you want to teach your children? And, you know, for me, I never knew my father. You know, I never knew my father. And it was something that as Colleen started to grow up, you know, my mother told me this story, you know, that, you know, he was an Olympic swimmer in Venezuela. They met and at six months old, she moved back to San Diego so that my grandfather could raise me. And that was the only story I knew. I saw two pictures of him and, you know, my grandfather raised me. He was my father. And that's something that I've never been, oh, well, you know, I had a shitty life because I didn't know my dad. It was never like that. It was, you know, I was blessed to have my grandfather raise me. But as Colleen got older, I was like, well, I want to know the answer. You know, we live in a world where the internet, the answer is there. You know, we didn't even have to look very hard. You know, I asked my mom other questions to help us find in. And, you know, I found out that he's living in Pueblo, Colorado. And, you know, he doesn't want to have anything to do with me. And you'd think that I'd be upset with that, but I'm not. I'm actually not at all. You know, that's that's his choice and that's what it is. And now I can move on and I can go and I can be an example for Colleen. And now when Colleen asks me, hey, you know, who's who's your dad? Like, why, why isn't your dad around? I was like... He's just not around. You know, I know the answer to that. It's a really important thing to have your, your father around. And it's, you know, your, my dad had a similar experience where he didn't have the benefit of having a father around. Um, you know, your grandfather was your father. So you, you, know, you benefited from that. But it's, um, I, I, talk to, I tell my dad this all the time. And I tell Steve, Steve Warfield, my, my father-in-law all the time that, you know they they're getting older you know their backs hurt their knees breaking down my, my mother-in-law just had major spine surgery and she's recovered amazingly from it and is walking six miles a day but like what i talked to my wife about is it's like they're showing us how to age with grace they're showing us how how we should do it when we're older and like those are some of the those like subconscious benefits that you get from your being around a dad right being around your mom it's just like you know, they could bitch and moan about it all day long. They're in pain all the time. They have discomfort. Sure. They've got fears. They've got, you know, they're looking out. How much longer am I alive? All these different things that could consume them. But they turn away from that. And instead, they have grace and humility. And they show us kids, like, how to how to behave when we get that, to that age. So then we can pass that on to our own kids. And so, I mean, just know. as important as it is for us to be a father to our kids and to be there for them, it's just as important you don't realize the impact that you can have like I'm sure your father never realized the impact that he would have on my life watching him as an entrepreneur start Blue Lagoon as a pet store tell us a little bit about the entrepreneurial path because even though you worked this corporate job you know working for Al Jaffe who was this patriarch this man that embraced life that had this passion for real estate had this passion for making things better you we both grew up watching your father and your mother own businesses. Uh, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so that's kind of the origin story of Blue Lagoon, the name at least. I was born here in La Mesa, uh, Kaiser Hospital, and my dad had a store right here on Fletcher Parkway. Pet store. Uh, pet store, yeah, Blue Lagoon Pet, uh, pet Store, and uh, which then morphed into uh, a different company several years later. I think it was 1972 it opened. Um, so the kind of the simple story is just Blue Lagoon Coffee is a simple way for me to kind of honor my dad and let him know 
how much I appreciate him and his story and his whole uh, experience within, you know, starting something that he knew very little about and was just like, I was going to, he was going to be a speech pathologist. Like that's what his major was at San Diego State, which he didn't even finish. Yeah. I mean, I'd be happy that I said that on <laughs> TV and I didn't have a college degree. But, um, <clears throat> it's behind the smoke. It's fine. It's totally but yeah, cool. he was on a completely different trajectory. And when he met my mom, he just, they wanted to create a life and they wanted to have a family and they, they wanted to have security and peace of mind. And so they just poured their lives into it and slept in their stores and built everything themselves and had kids along the way had kids. Yeah. Along the way and, and made it all work and set a great example for me and my two sisters. What gave you the passion about coffee? So let's uh, kind of indulge in, in that. I, I'm i not a huge coffee drinker, but what I do know is that I just had this coffee and I'm all hopped up now. But um, <laughs> it's not... So <clears throat> when I do have drinks, I, I don't want to put a ton of sugar in it, um, especially with the, what I'm doing right now. And this isn't that real bitter black coffee that I'm used to drinking. This is... but this. Is this considered black coffee? Yeah, yeah, this yeah. Is it's like amazing. Un- I mean, no, it's phenomenal. Yeah, there's no no milk, no creamer, no sugar, nothing. nothing. Just straight black coffee. Well, Phil, give me. Don't. You got it. I got you. Come I on, got guy. you. I'll barista you. <laughs> I got you. Make sure you put one of those fancy little <laughs> leaves or. Uh, uh, I want a heart. Can you put a heart? Yeah, with like properly extracted coffee. You know, there's like three. There's like three phases of it. There's like acidic, which is under extracted. There's bitter, which is over extracted coffee, and then. What sits in between that is sweet coffee, mm-hmm. and that's where you get balance, nuance, subtlety, and that's what my goal is: is to deliver perfectly extracted coffee or well extracted coffee. Really, is no perfect extraction, um, so you can come in every day and get it, get that great experience. So, hopefully, when you drink Blue Lagoon coffee or really any specialty coffee, um, you should be getting that balanced kind of sweet cup, not something acidic or not something bitter. That's kind of commonly associated with just standard coffee. I guess you know, that's what diner house coffee. Mm-hmm. That's what I do. Coffee. When I go to like Starbucks and I have to get like a black coffee, and I'm like, I fucking hate coffee. Yeah. Coffee is disgusting. And then yeah. I'm like, No, I just had some Blue Lagoon coffee, yeah. and it's fucking that's, really, that's really good. Really, really good point. Yeah. You know, I, if you I, have I, shitty black coffee, it's shitty black coffee. It yeah. can get rough. You yeah. know, and but you know, how the majority of drinkers are out there for what they're out there for the caffeine right. they're out there for that jolt and so by being able to give people that jolt alongside something that they can sit and think about and contemplate and maybe look like hey this tastes really good i'd like to where's it from mm-hmm. oh this is an ethiopian central american brazilian blend this is our house coffee this will be like our, our standard house coffee we serve at, at, at blue lagoon um, this, I, is, this is what you guys are going to serve uh-huh. at Blue Lagoon. Yeah. How did you go about the process of selecting um, your coffee? So when I, well, <clears throat> Derek was asking about kind of how I chose coffee. Yeah. So it started in like 2003 mm-hmm. when I started making cheese at home. <laughs> cheese? Cheese, yeah. And really, I, I thought think, he was fucking crazy. He's really? Like, you well, I was. My cheese? If you, I'm like, if no, you're, you're fucking nuts. No. <laughs> right. Like, I'm not cheese, you're like you're, you're from under cheese? I don't want to <laughs> oh. smell your dick. It's not happening. <laughs> well, my mother-in-law ate a lot of it. She ate, actually ate the most of it. And I was like, <laughs> I'd open it. I'm like, it's cheddar. She's like, it's feta. And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but I had this... For some reason, I've always been fascinated with like agricultural <laughs> products and like studying topography and like regions. And so I started with 
with with cheese and making cheese and using raw milk versus you know conventional milk and then organic milk and sure non-pasteurized uh, just doing all that stuff and then I was like I seriously looked into like opening a creamery and being like how can I look look at look into this like where are the cattle I got to get close to the cattle facilities and it was like I'm looking at you know Vermont and just crazy places logistical like, nightmare so like, within a day or so that was just eviscerated like that cheese is not a real option let's keep it a hobby <laughs> that rotated into whole grain home brewing with my brother-in-law we were doing 15 gallon batches at the house brewing all types of beers that was really fun the quality of the beer was a little weird <laughs> but it was also a way that you know I got to connect with my my future wife you know one of our first couple of dates we were in our bathroom scrubbing beer bottles cleaning sanitizing equipment like cleaning it. out carboys she didn't it, run away she didn't run away <laughs> she thought it was really neat and fun and all, i was shocked but we were just we were getting into that and so i made beer a lot and mixed results but i could never make great beer right and if you've ever made homebrew it's an eight eight plus hour saturday experience 100%. and it, it's more cleaning than you want to know and I didn't have the, I had great equipment, but not the proper testing equipment to know where I, my temperatures were and different things like that. But um, I had too much haze in my beer. And, um, so, which, which now is a good thing. Everyone loves a hazy IPA nowadays. Yeah, yeah, the unfiltered stuff. Right. Um, but so, I, so then I went to beer and then I really got more into wine from there where my brother-in-law were planting grapes. We were growing grapes. We were buying grapes from vineyards out in um, uh, Temecula, and we were making our own wine. And it was rough wine; it was table wine. But I was really getting into that, and right. looking, taking classes up at UC Davis and um, viticulture, and and trying to sign up in classes there. And <clears throat> actually, it was insane. And like applied for like vineyard management jobs in in Santa Barbara and Santa Maria, and like was going to like pick up my bags and go up there. Go. Yeah, so I we and went through the wine thing and then you know, when when my life personally was kind of in this stage of like just absolute struggle, I was always thinking about like what's my exit? Like how am I going to get out? And like then what am I going to do? You know, how am I going to turn away a four-year college degree, all these certi- you know, all this money and time I put in to get these, you know, certifications and mm-hmm. And so I, in having a young family, I started getting turned on to coffee and making coffee at home, pour over coffee. And it allowed me to kind of just like tune out and just like spend five minutes and focus on like grind, you know, my pour over strategy and like tasting and thinking about flavors. And like, that was a nice escape for me. And then it like a bell went off where I was like, you know, coffee's a morning thing. I can work the mornings. Like, you know, uh, beer and wine. That's a, hopefully a, a, a night thing, but you know, an afternoon to the night, to, <laughs> right. to the evening <laughs> thing. We hope you're not. Busy yeah. <laughs> and so it, it was, you know, and for me, I just, I was trying to be honest and I was like, it's going to be degenerative for me. You right. know, if I was to open up a beer shop or, and it's, you know, look home brewing in 2003 in San Diego, I mean, it wasn't like I wasn't on trend. Right. It wasn't oh, yeah. like I wasn't early. No, for it wasn't sure. Like no, if it was I, if fucking I, early. If sure. I poured myself. You got to get everything at Brew Mart, probably. Yep. That's where I was going. Where yeah. was. Linda Vista Road, yeah. Brew Mart, just, you know, crushing everything they could give me, <laughs> right. go online. Whenever I travel for work, I try to find all the little brew shops and find all the little weird gear. Yeah. Really early days, but it was on trend and I didn't know it, but um, at least I look back at that and I, get, I gain confidence from that. Right. That's like, hey, at least I have some 
fingers on some pulse of what's going on. Um, but yeah, it just came down to what was suitable for my lifestyle. And coffee, um, how I stumbled across it was, you know, through podcasts, really. Uh, Scott Carey is a is a owner of a coffee shop in St. Louis called um, Sump Coffee. And his story was amazing, where he was a New York kind of hedge fund banker, and his brother had passed away in his mid-30s, and it, and he moved back to St. Louis just to be with his family, and you know, his life was in shambles as well. So he started doing these cool online videos about his new coffee shop and how he kind of broke down coffee and used coffee as this 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 way to kind of heal himself and then connect with the community. But then he ran out of videos and podcasts. Oh, and really? so <laughs> I was like, I'm in. And like, the hooks were in. And I'm like, you know, he's like, I think it's like 10 videos. Uh-huh. And he ran out of content. So I went searching for more content. And that's when I found the Cat and Cloud guys. And so I started listening to all their podcasts. And um, it was uh, it was really fun to listen to them because they're they're super transparent and open, just like this podcast. Mm-hmm. They're talking about all the shit shows, all the things that go wrong, all the the, the foibles that that they that they can't get right, and all these things. So I just started listening to their podcast every day, and then re-listening to them, and my interest in coffee just started blossoming from there. Um, and that's how I kind of knew from day one, like if I could ever make this happen, that those would be the guys I, 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 I would first reach out to to see if they would work with me mm-hmm. um, because they were like the real seedlings of my, 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 my coffee interest. That's awesome. And you found them just through podcast searching. Yeah. I mean, the internet is like blowing my mind. Like I had it's this a great equalizer. I mean, it is like we lived in a world where we grew up and there was a time when the librarians, we would go and they would teach us how to go through the card catalog to find a fucking book so that you could do research and then get a book that was, you know, last updated 10 years ago. I mean, this is, you know, when we went to high school, you know, we, I graduated, we, you and me, we graduated in 2000, Derek, you're right after. And like now you have literally you just Google search. I mean, you fucking home Alexa search. Well, it's even freakier than that. Like, I there's a guy, uh, Randall Graham, who's this famous winemaker out of, uh, I think, the Santa Cruz area, South San Francisco area. He's a huge guy in the wine business. I, years ago, I just tweeted at him. I'm thinking of opening an urban winery, da-da-da, and I would love to get your thoughts. He tweeted me right back. Here's my cell phone number. Call me. Wow. wow. I totally panicked. Right? <laughs> I was like, I never called him. And I'm like, I'm not calling this guy. He actually responded. Holy call- shit. He gave you a call to action. I just freaked out like, and was like, this is internet. It's just too weird. <laughs> this is probably some bot or I don't know what it was, but it was just too weird for me. And then I had the same experience with Cat and Cloud. That's where awesome. I made comments on the YouTube page and then Chris would write back, like super stoked on your, you know, checking us out and that this is like resonating with you. And I was like, gosh, I'm like communicating with this guy. I'm like, <laughs> what the fuck is happening? Here? Yeah. And then um, it just kind of blossomed from there. Um, but yeah, the internet to me, I feel like these people aren't accessible. Yeah. You know, I don't, I feel like these, these, these people that I view as like famous people mm-hmm. or stars within their industry, they're just, they're too busy to think about people like us. Like I think of your, your email that you sent me from Gary Vaynerchuk. Isn't that insane? And you're just like, what? Like, yeah. how yeah. is this guy responding to you? I think a lot of times we need to get back to understanding that people are still people. Yeah. And I think sometimes you get this uh, vision that they're more than that and that you put them up on some type of pedestal or, or whoever it is. 
uh, at the end of the day, they're still people. And, yeah. you know, when I was playing football or whatever, it was, I would never not sign an autograph. I would never turn anything away because we're just people trying to get through life the best we can. And everyone's the same. Everyone's the same. You can't, when you start to think like, well, oh, I, I can't email that guy or I, I can't fucking email. Yeah. Or they're too, Call or they're too busy. Like, yeah. Or no one's too busy. I mean, the fact, you know, I shared that email from Gary Vaynerchuk and it's like, you know, somebody that's out there doing his thing, running his podcast, building his, you know, his Vayner media, all the <clears> things that he's doing in, he's writes a book that was published, you know, six years ago. And in his book is a call to action to, you know, let us know about, if you have a Facebook story, you know, let me know. I sent him an email and he fucking responded back. You know, it's like I That's wrote hand to hand combat, I'm right? Doesn't they call to, that hand to hand combat? Pretty much. Yeah, it's a jab. I mean you're I'm listening to a Tim Ferris podcast and he's interviewing Ariana Huffington, who's Huffington Post, and she's mm-hmm. like talking about how to get a hold of her. And she Tim's like, Don't don't give out your email, otherwise, you know, you're gonna all the people that listen, these, you know, two hundred million people that have downloaded my podcast, you know, they're gonna flood your inbox. She gives out her email. I sent her an email. She's like, I love the story. You know, publish it on this. I was like, how the fuck is Ariana Huffington responding to my email? Well, if you don't do it, you don't know. Right. You know, like if you don't make that call to action, you have never, no, you have no idea where that door is going to lead. Totally. You know, if I didn't send a tweet to Jim Trotter, you know, we wouldn't be as close of friends as we are. You know, after I tweeted him, we become friends. Now I ask him for help for a San Diego love letter challenge to try and keep our chargers in San Diego. And like he was instrumental in helping me in that. But you have no fucking clue. Like, why would Jim Trotter have time for, you know, some barbecue restaurant owner? You don't know unless you try. Yeah. What's the worst that that happens? Taking that first step and, like, actually doing it and, like, getting over the anxiety or fear of, like, what might happen and what might happen. Yeah. Well, we can get, we can always get caught up in those, you know, and if you let that dictate what you're going to do, it's it's never going to work. You you can't get caught up in the what ifs. If you know you're passionate about this and, you know, you know your work ethic and what you can do. You just got to fucking do it. You just got to go and do it and believe in your product. And, you know, when we were talking the other day, if you start with a good product and then you add, you sprinkle a little bit of good marketing on that, that's a recipe that's going to fucking work. You know, if you start with a great product and you believe in it, just sprinkle a little bit and you're going to start taking off. No doubt. And, you know, you have your one location right now starting up here soon. I mean, I don't know. I think this is going to be a fucking hit, man. This is a... well, this is great that, stuff. I mean, the, the things that we're sprinkling on it is we're spreading knowledge on the internet for free. And, right. like, you have no fucking clue what kind of impact that you can make. I mean, Cat and Cloud, they're out of Santa Cruz, you know, and they've inspired you to jump off the entrepreneurial cliff to start your own coffee business. You totally. Know? It's fucking rad. I mean, you know? these guys are catalysts. These guys are pushers. What they're doing is providing a guidepost, an example for others who share common beliefs. They're like, we're not for everybody. But here's our belief system. Here's our value structure. Here's our mission statement. And then what they do is they show you how they live it. Yeah. Like one example I have, which I credit Alex Mars, their director of, of wholesale for, is when I started this process, I was really inundated with coffee. Of like, I know what I like in coffee. I know what I'd like to do in coffee. But there's another. There's two other aspects of it. One is customer service and the other aspect is environment and atmosphere sure like those are the three legs for specialty coffee for me atmosphere customer service and coffee and they're all should be treated equally so i felt confident with the coffee because i was hooking up with people who 
I really respected and loved their coffee and had drinking through everything that they provided drinking through. Um, but, <laughs> um, what was amazing is this situation I had with Alex where I was first reaching out to him to talk about wholesale and I'm just, you know, knees are knocking. I'm super nervous. I'm just like, God, they're going to, they don't want to dilute their brand with someone like yeah. me. Who am I? They're going to you know? see right through me. Yeah. They're going to know I'm a fake. That totally. I, that I don't know shit. Absolutely. And so I called Alex and he, he called me back and his, just the inflection in his voice was so positive and he was so authentic about delivering a customer service experience for me regardless if we were going to work together or not. And I remember that first conversation I had with him and I was like, this is going to be the spark for how I'm going to have customer service is like, I'm going to live it and I'm going to breathe it. And I'm going to let this conversation, this feeling I got from him, like be kind of the starting point for how I'm going to start building my customer service delivery model. Isn't it crazy when you have that experience? I mean, Derek and I, we talk about it in the barbecue world, you know, people, they get so built up, you know, like people from Mike Mills from 17th Street Barbecue, Gene Goykachea. It's like they build, like you build these people up so much that you're terrified. You know, I'm terrified to go ask Gene for questions when he's the type of person that he just lives it. You know, he lives it and like he comes and he's giving us, Derek and I, all this knowledge on how to put on an amateur barbecue contest. And like you're just waiting for him to send the invoice, you know, like here right. you go. No, like, for sure. Like I'm like, this can't be right, you know, but no, he's genuine in his belief that barbecue is about charity barbecue is about big giving back barbecue is way bigger than this one second transaction that i'm in. and now you know he's i mean he's he's an uncle to my to my son you know i mean he's family yeah no it's the relationships you build and in like you said where you don't think you can make that leap and talk to that person you realize really really quick that a lot of them just want to fucking help the and genuine they, ones. Well, the good, the good companies. You know, obviously, if they have a podcast, they're doing good shit. They got a shit ton of followers. They're doing something right. Those people are usually the ones that are the, the one. I mean, they yeah. want to be able to help and they want to grow. I mean, they don't want. It's not about a transaction. It's right. about a long-term, lifetime relationship. Yeah, and these know? guys live it. I mean, Chris Baca and Jared Truby and uh, Charles Jack are the three owners of Cat and Cloud. Did they bring you out? Uh, they actually came out and saw me. They came out to see you. Yeah. Get the fuck Jeez. out of here. I mean, I got a question real quick before we go on. Does your mouth ever get used to drinking this shit that hot? Because I just burned the fuck out of myself. Really? Is that normal? Or is it just like a little vagina mouth? I think you have a vagina well, mouth. Well, you know, <laughs> coffee... It's a cute, cute little vagina mouth. <laughs> it's a cute little vagina mouth. Well, so when you... Look, it's a good it's a good thing to hear, good feedback, because when you brew coffee and you get it transferred into a, you know, a, a serving vessel, it can be like 175, 185 degrees. What's the right temperature to drink coffee at? I don't know. I like drinking coffee like 160, 165. That's okay. like more drinkable. I like to get a cup of coffee, let it sit a little bit and cool down. Like, I don't know. I haven't drank Starbucks coffee in a long time, but I used to get it and I couldn't drink it for two hours. Like it was just lava. Right. But uh, we'll serve coffee at around 170, 175 degrees and it'll cool down pretty quickly to 160, 165. Um, but if you let, just like wine, just like beer, you let it get to room temperature and you a lot starts coming out. A lot totally. more starts coming out. I Especially with that. white wine, you know. If you want to know how much you like that wine, let it go to room temperature and swish it around your mouth and then you're like, this is something totally different. Dude, I tell people about that all the time. About beer, when we used to do our Cicerone classes, I'm like, wait, 
let it open up a little bit. And they're like, beer? I'm like, yes. Right now, when it's that fucking cold, you're, it's going to suppress a lot of those flavors. Wait till it opens up. The aroma is going to come out even more. And yeah, it's not as enjoyable to drink, but you can get way more flavors. So when you're when you're great when you're grading on the you know what's the IBUs on this or what's you know what kind of hops are these? It's a lot easier to taste once it gets a little bit warmer. Totally. So talk a little bit about you know the business plan itself and what had to go into site selection. And I mean, now, cause you know, a lot of people, they, they think about it, you know, they think about sitting in the car and being like, I don't want to fucking go to this job. I want to do it myself. But like that took a long time for you to get to where you are, where you're, you know, going to be opening on January 8th and actually transacting. I can't believe you it's know. fucking here. I know I it's finally it fucking here. Dude. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. So the business process for me, this is my experience, but like what I listened to your podcast, like what this is like this emotional equalizer is really how I view this podcast. It's like whoever you have on is telling a story that everyone can relate to. It's kind of like, Hey, you're not in alone. Like we're yeah. all feeling these same th- feelings of right. Like the first thing I dealt with, the very first thing was this imposter you know, syndrome where I was just, I'm this imposter. I'm a desk jockey in a corporate <laughs> office and now I'm coming into this business and I don't know anything. About, I'm not an expert it's on like, coffee. If I was to ask you to go buy really thick, high grade I-beam steel for downtown high rises, now go get me pricing and you want to understand the thicknesses and the strengths yeah. and the alloys no. and the, you know, how the schmelter gets it all together. You're like... <laughs> you're just imposter. You're just yeah. a fake. And like, so, you know, I go, I started out with trying to read everything I possibly could, which gives you this technical knowledge. And then where I am now is going from technical knowledge to practical experience and merging the two where I can not just be a book nerd about coffee, but when it comes to running a cafe, just be a complete jackass. Sure. Um, and so well, now there's, I mean, there's the business component. You yeah. can have the passion for coffee, but now ultimately you have to be in business. You have yeah. to make a profit. You have to deal with all the nuts and bolts that it takes to hire somebody to help you run your coffee shop. Yeah, so step one was overcoming this imposter syndrome, which I'm still dealing with because um, I haven't opened yet. I'm still dealing with it. But I mean, like, you'll, al- you'll always be dealing with it. I'm, I talk about it. I'm not a barbecue expert. Yeah. Well, you're talking about getting on KOSI. You're like, I hope they don't ask me questions about the pecan wood. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. They're going to fucking fuck this up. Yeah. And that's, you know, there's a thing that, um, gosh, I wish I could credit exactly who gave it. It it, it, might've been a cat and cloud podcast, but it was that, you know, if you really are passionate about something, then you really want to drive towards being a master and to be a master, you have to be willing to be a fool. Because no one's born a master. Right. So if you're not willing to be a fool, you'll never be a master. Taking those first steps. So go mm-hmm. in. Like, uh, that's where, that's me and my coffee shop. I'm a little bit of I Love Lucy back there at times. <laughs> you know? And it's, uh, it's okay. Like, I'm willing to look foolish, look silly, ask dumb questions, fuck up my brew ratios, make my grind, like, figure out my grinder. Not, you know, with my employees, you know, that I'm hiring and being like, I need you to help me figure out this equipment. Sure. You know, I've only I've only read the manual four times. I don't know how it works in real bar flow. Right. So I'm really embracing that that fool role of like I'm a fool and that's okay. Like because I will grow out of this stage into another stage, which on my path to being a master. Hopefully. That humility is going to help you grow so much. I mean, honestly, that humility that you're talking about right there is going to help you grow more than you even understand right now. I mean, you can think like, oh, I'm going to look like a fool. 
it's not even about that. You're allowing yourself to learn and not trying to be this fucking know-it-all. Yeah. Right? And saying that I know everything. Podcast 39, Josh Gross. Part of the thing that you were talking about with the WWE reference was, you know, turning it not just entertainment, but accessibility. And, you know, I think I saw it on the NLL um, website, but it's digital first is the focus for marketing. Can you talk about um, why that is and uh, how you guys are going to go about broadcasting games and getting fans engaged that aren't even in the seats? Well, what was it? Maybe 10, 15 years ago, kids were watching six hours of TV a day and that number is crashing. And if you look at what ESPN says, it's they count screens. They don't count TVs. Uh, and so we have to be digital first because that's the future. And it's the present, in fact. So we created an over-the-top platform in NLL TV. For those of you that don't know what OTT is, and it's a, it's a sexy term that gets thrown around. But basically, <laughs> the idea behind it was instead of having the middleman, which was your cable provider, you went you skipped over them straight to the content. And so NLL TV, we have every one of our games streaming on NLL TV. Uh, we have great numbers, great subscriber rates on NLL TV. Blew away what our you had, expectations. You had like 350,000 people so, on average watching so those games? That was Twitter. So we had a Twitter, Twitter game of the week. Unbelievable. Twitter wow. did not. 350,000 people watching those games. On average. And Twitter on was average. blown away. They didn't even believe their own numbers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, I, believe, and frankly, I believe it. They that, capped that's incredible. At, we capped at just shy of a million viewers for the semifinals last year. Wow. Uh, and so that's a very valuable platform. And that was North America. And we're talking about expanding it globally. We also have some other uh, potential digital partners who have expressed tremendous interest based on, frankly, the Twitter Game of the Week numbers and our NLL TV subscriber rates. That the future of the National Lacrosse League is really bright. Podcast 47, Mike and Amy Mills. Been fortunate to to be the the barbecue guy that has served the president of the United States. Well, yes, and of course, I had no clue and really <laughs> wasn't putting quite together exactly what all was gonna was gonna happen. And of course, I knew the president was gonna come to town. I and I had these Secret Service guys coming in about a week ahead of time before I knew what was happening. And of course, they'd already checked everything out to see, you know, that I wasn't some sort of a terrorist. And, you know, the group around there wasn't going to poison. And there are certain rules that you had to go by, and we had to charge. We had to, uh, you know, you think, well, to get the president, yeah, I'll, I'll do it for nothing. You know, yeah, for sure. I'll, Absolutely. Um, but couldn't do that. Oh, really? You, they, no, had, they had they a had minimum? To, uh, we had to charge them a fee. Oh, yeah. Um, and... All that food ended up being donated. Oh, really? Yes, it was donated to uh, some of the churches in town and different, uh, different, you know, groups. But then we prepared a barbecue meal for the, uh, well, both of them were barbecue, actually. But then we cooked for the president, you know. What was the menu? Uh, Ribs. <laughs> <laughs> baby backs or spares? Uh, baby backs. Always baby backs. Always baby backs. Always no, baby backs. I've always cooked baby backs all my life. I, they're 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 just a better rib. You know, yeah. don't misunderstand me. The other ones are good and they're awesome, but at the same time, a baby back is is got the flavor. Yeah, know, absolutely. It has a higher pH balance, and it's 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 a far it's far more tender piece of meat, anyways, with that with that fat content in it. It's great, right? And, you know, you can just bring <clears> the flavor <throat> out in them. You still got the ribs, but 
you know, they're much leaner, not near the fat content. Right. Um, and I always say, you know, it tastes more like a pork chop. Yep. Uh, whereas the other ones taste, you know, they taste like ribs. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and it's not a, it's not a, in the weight bearing section of the hog, so it's it's going to be just a naturally more tender piece of meat, anyways. So exactly. I, I, I personally do baby back ribs at my my place all the time, and we we go through you know a lot, and it's just uh, I figured out it's a lot better for me, and I, I love the consistency of a baby back rib more and, it, and it's so subjective right because everyone has their own you know spare ribs baby back um <clears throat> but you know it's just what i personally like and you know i know sean you, you guys we do, do yeah we do st louis you guys do st, st. louis, st. louis, st. louis in the restaurant <clears throat> well and, and different ones you know both ribs are good if you're if you like barbecue you're going to enjoy either one of them did the president enjoy your but barbecue at this, at this, pardon did the president enjoy your barbecue Oh yes. Oh yeah. <laughs> Which president was it? What I, what, it was you know, there's been several Bill, things Bill that's happened out of that whole event. Um, his chief security man, I did his wedding. Oh really? Yeah. That's by a, way of mail. No way. That his is rehearsal amazing. dinner. No yeah, way. Yeah, his, I did his rehearsal dinner. Very cool. And uh, everybody always asks me. Did he pay you? <laughs> <laughs> did he pay you? Uh, in advance. <laughs> yes, he did. Yeah. You know, it's the same as, you know, I couldn't donate the meal. I couldn't give the meal. I had to pay our, um, I had to charge for the meal. Yeah. yeah. You know, I had to charge for the meal that, um, you know, I, I couldn't get it. I couldn't show favoritism. I couldn't do all these things, the rules that, they had to go by. Did you get to go aboard Air Force One? Actually, deliver the ribs onto the onto the. Air I Force did one? not. We. I was at the restaurant uh-huh. waiting for the president to show up. Ah. In the meanwhile, from the time that I left, the crowd left, and we left to go to the restaurant. Um, he had gotten a call as they were going down the street. He had gotten a call that they were having problems and he needed to come back to Washington immediately that they were having uh, problems in Bosnia oh. at that particular point mm-hmm. in time. Um, and of course I always told him, you know, I, whenever I got to talk to him, and I might add he's very impressive individual. I mean, you know, he's stature of him and everything. He's kind of sure. like you. I mean, you know, when you walk up, it's there. <laughs> there. Yeah. yeah. And, and he was he, he was very cool. I mean, the things that went on and the when he was at the school, uh, they didn't know whether they, they almost had it to where there wasn't going to be any more colleges. I mean, it just everything. And he was there to dispel this myth, you know, that he wasn't there to cut out the colleges, cut the kids where they couldn't afford it. You know, I mean, this type of thing. Um, but he was a very impressive individual. Whether you happen to like him or not like him, he is very, you know, if you talk to him, he's... Charismatic, he's, very yeah. charismatic. Yes, very, very much so. I mean, he'd change your mind just through meeting him and talking with him. I think that happens a lot when you, when you get these high-profile people. <clears throat> when you get in front of them, you can actually relate to them a lot more and you can you can see that they're they're humans and they're <clears throat> just people and you can talk to them you're like man i actually like this person a lot people think these uh high profile people are just untouchable you, you don't know what you're going to get and <clears throat> nine times out of ten they're they're just normal people 
Good, yes, good quality, exactly. Good quality people, man. And people don't understand that <clears throat> you know there are certain people that they they just got this. When he walked in the room, you know he came out of out of out of one room and walked into the room. You could you didn't. My back was to him, but I knew that somebody of importance had showed up. Sure. You could feel it. You could feel it. it. You, feel you could it. feel the electricity. For sure. I mean, and there wasn't a loudspeaker saying, you know, and here's the president, blah, blah, blah. Uh, he was great to talk to, you know, nice to be around. Um, and the guy that I did the wedding for, I can't remember, I apologize, I can't remember his name now. Um, I talked to him quite a bit. And... They really couldn't talk to you about a whole lot until they got ready to leave. And the security that came in, and, and he was one of them that uh, was telling about how great it was. And he was there to give his life sure. to the president yeah. if wow. necessary. They learned how to walk in unison with his back to the president's back, you know, going forward, going out into the crowd. He was there to take a bullet. Well, that was his job. Mike, uh, talk to me a little bit about how you got this uh, barbecue bug, if you will. How did you get uh, so in, involved in, in barbecue? I mean, I know it's kind of something that a lot of us grew up with. Like, you know, my, my dad kind of <clears throat> taught me. And at first, I, I didn't like it because I'd always smell them. I'm like, oh, my gosh, Dad, you, you always smell like smoke and this and that. And um, But you, it's, it's infectious. How did you get caught up in it? Well, my dad was a barbecue. He loved to barbecue. That's if he uh, if he wasn't fishing, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> uh, he was barbecuing. Sure. And it's just something that he did every Saturday. My dad was a salesman. Uh, you know, he sold on uh, he sold soap suds, palm olive, uh, and cigarettes, <laughs> uh, this type of thing to grocery stores. And his whole family had been involved in the selling world somewhere or another at one point in time down southeast Missouri. And But every weekend he barbecued and all the neighbors would bring over meat and uh, he would barbecue. And sometime that night, depending on what had happened to me, that they were cooking or wanting as to when it would happen to come off. And uh, I remember as a kid waking up and smelling smoke and my crib was next to the window, and I'd sit and holler until <laughs> my mom would come in and open the window up or, or open the uh, blinds up and be able to see my dad out there. Then I'd holler and scream to go outside. And I had never did figure out, you know, well, it took me years to figure out. I finally got, I finally got it. <laughs> sure. That how come he put that wood pile just about over there to that wall, you know, about 10, to, 10 12 foot away from the where he was needing it but it was my job to haul the limb the dog uh, he built me a wagon or a wheelbarrow to haul the wood over to the fire and of course i little know get one over there and it was a long trip from i'm gonna tell sure. you, you know a little kid over there to uh haul this wood and you know i wasn't smart enough to you know talk him into putting it closer <laughs> for sure <laughs> But that was my job was to haul the, haul the wood, you know. And I'm going to tell you, and of course, the wagon was made out of orange crates. Um, but I knew that we were going to get something good to eat. Yeah. And all the neighbors knew that they were going to get something good to eat. 
but it was a big deal, you know. Sure. He, you know, he passed away whenever I was young, and I always missed that. But my brothers and my uncle uh, kind of took up the, uh, they also barbecued and kind of took that up. And then whenever I became older, then I started barbecuing. So, so it's just barbecued a, fam- a family affair. Yes. Just, just get everyone together. Way. And it's, it's good to hear you guys talk about, too, you know wanting to do an event for your guys' town and stuff and kind of bring people in. It's something that Sean and I are very passionate about as well. When we, we started doing our Spring Valley one, we had a thing. It was called the Santa Sophia Fair. And it got it was something that I went to when I was young. And then <clears throat> it went away. And it's just something now that we're doing this event, it's like we just want something for everyone to be proud of. You know, everyone to be able to come to and be proud of and uh, be, be excited about um, and get everybody together. Podcast 49, Adam Harris. Tell us a little bit about the challenges that you've had to face. Oh, man. <laughs> well, we fired, a, we fired a founder early on. So we had three of us who started the company. And, um, you know, for various reasons, they, it, it wasn't a good future together. And how so, was your, how were you guys set up? Uh, as a equal founders and, okay. and so you have the LLC a C Corp S Corp we were a C Corp okay. at the time and, and so you have the legal legalities of, of <clears throat> separation and it's almost like a divorce right, right. You're, you're, you're really you're really ripping apart of uh, something that everything was being held together by the founders that was really difficult um, I remember not sleeping for months as we were sort of processing that decision, one of the hardest things is to let go of people mm-hmm. because you impact their lives. Right? We heard that awesome, that that awesome voicemail. voicemail in the beginning. <laughs> At the beginning, my, but I my mean, former like, business partner. Yeah, yeah. So you, you affected his life, whether you know whether you meant to hurt or harm. You were doing what's right for your family and your business, and it's business. It's not personal. It's hard to. I mean, that's the tough part. Is separate. We two. say that it, it's not, but it is. It's it so fucking is. personal. Absolutely. Business is like. If you want to be successful, you better fucking embrace all of it. You're you're running a people business. Yeah. I mean, we sell technology, but people built the technology. So mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's a people business. Um, that was one of the hardest decisions of my life mm-hmm. is going through that. And I'm thankful that I went through it. There's some crazy stories that for another time we can talk about it. <laughs> There's some like, voicemails like Sean got, I'm yeah, sure. Not so much, but... Um, you know, we raised money. We had capital behind us. And so, like, the company was either going to fail or succeed. And Rich and I literally looked at ourselves, each other, and said, look, we could walk away. We could start over. We'll be fine. But these people put their money in us. And it was us they invested in. It wasn't the idea. They were investing in us to make that idea. How much How much did you raise in the beginning? Uh, over a year or so, it was a million bucks. Mm-hmm. So it was meaningful. It was right. a meaningful amount of money Absolutely. to people. And... I'll never forget, we just decided that we were going to eat it. We were going to keep going. and We were going to take the, the punishment of failing for that first year. So you were open for a year. Open for a year. Still, And we knew we were going to be open for a year. We knew we, were, we had to find what we were going to ultimately do. Right. But we didn't get far enough along. And it was just you three guys at the just time? Just us three. And there was a couple of ancillary employees. Podcast 54, Tabitha Lipkin. You know, it's it's been interesting to be in television at a time like this because I feel like we're in a very big shift in which we're in a position as local news where we're seeing what happened to newspapers 10, 15 years ago. Yes. Um, 
I knew this kind of lead. I was one of the very last students in a broadcast class at the University of Texas. That that class doesn't exist anymore because right. it's more of a digital encompassing with broadcast class. So um, I knew that the only brand I could ever be loyal to was myself. Yeah. Um, local news, you start in a small market, and then you go to another market, and you go to another market. And everyone's kind of in this large hustle, if you would imagine, trying to get to the top or, or where they want to be ideally in their careers, whether it is you want to work in L.A. or New York or you you know want to work in entertainment, sports. So um, since I knew I could only ever carry my brand, that's the brand I focused on the most. And when was that? Like around what time was this? Um, Facebook. Um, was our main thing in college. So I I kept with that pretty early on. But um, when did you start your own page? I started my own page when I came here to San Diego. And I started working at the CW6 that uh, no longer exists, rest in peace. And uh, (laughs) I I created something there. So I have an outlet. And that's where I could put all my stories and things like that. Because I didn't want to overrun people who were just my friends with all the stuff I'm doing at work, because I figured people could get annoyed by it. Sure. (laughs) Yeah, we uh, try to separate ours, you know, and it's hard. It's you have to find that balance. Yeah. For me, it's been been extremely hard to kind of figure out what to put out, what not to put out, and what to keep personal, what not to keep personal. And, you know, it's you got to figure out what works for you and <clears throat> what your end goals are. Yeah. You know, and everyone's end goals are, are different. So it's not a right or wrong. It's just, you know, what fulfills your, your, your needs. And for me, you know, keeping my personal stuff a little bit more personal um, than business has been, been good for, for what we do here. And as you both said, you're always learning, right? We're always yes. learning new things. Things are always developing and changing. So if you were to scroll to the very back of my Instagram, mm-hmm. you wouldn't see pictures of myself. Right. I like to take pictures of places and other people and things. But then there became a shift where people were interested what seemed like more specifically in my life. Yes. And that's when if you, I mean, I, I kind of personally, to be honest with you, I don't, I don't like it. I don't right. like that you look at my page and it's a bunch of pictures of me. But if I were to put a picture of like the most beautiful tropical place you've ever seen you'd be surprised it wouldn't get a lot of traction yeah eight eight likes yeah it's pretty incredible so i tested something out you'll see right here actually for the first time i decided to put up a tweet that i thought was funny in order to maybe i love that was a good tweet yeah to maybe see if people were interested in my like um (laughs) inner thoughts that i put typically on twitter and it did pretty well so then I might, you know, shift that. I won't always screen grab it from Twitter and, and possibly do kind of more meme account things here and there that are more shareable to get more people to end up coming back to what I've got going sure. on and seeing what I do. Yeah, I think just exactly what you said. We've never lived in a time that's been so fascinating. I mean, we right before you came on the podcast, we were, you know, joking about reverse engineering the media, bringing you know, you cover media, you're in the field, you're out doing all these incredible things, interviewing all these huge celebrities, doing all this incredible stuff. And we're bringing you behind the smoke to talk on a podcast about digital marketing, (laughs) about media. Podcast 55, Brian Smith. I uh, was sort of brought up as, you know, with my parents wanting me to be safe uh they i chose to be an accountant or they chose for me to <laughs> they, be an accountant. they chose for you to be and uh it took me 10 years of study because i did it i worked in the daytime and uh, studied at night it took me 10 years to graduate and i quit the same day really yeah i hated it and uh i always felt that there was something inside that i wanted to do for mm-hmm. myself and i was uh, living in perth at the time uh that's on the west coast of australia and I was, uh, you know, 
jinking around for a couple of weeks trying to figure out what am I going to do and I remember opening up the cover of uh, you know ripping the cellophane off to Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon and, <laughs> yeah. and I put it on the second song I was you know, tired of lying in the sunshine staying home to watch the rain you are young and life is long and there is time to kill today and I just went shit he's talking about me right <laughs> And then one day you find ten years have got behind you. No one told you when to run. <laughs> you missed the starting gun. And as soon as I heard that, I just got the goosebumps, you know. And I went, shit. I thought of all my friends tracking off to partnerships in the accounting business and other friends who'd started out of school, you know, ten years ago and they had good businesses. And I went, God, I've been running on the spot for ten years. And so that inspired me to sort of figure out what can I do and in a meditation one day, I thought, you know, goosebumps again. I, I thought, oh, shit, all the big trends are coming out of California. I'm, I'm going to go to California and find the next big thing and bring it back to Australia and get the jump on everybody, you know. And uh, within like two weeks, I, I arrived in L.A. with my surfboard and my suitcase and, nice, and nice. Uh, rented a little house in, in Santa Monica and uh, I'd always dreamed of surfing Malibu, you know, so I, I just went straight there and surfed like for a couple of months, you know, still all the time looking for some new business, but, uh, you know, never finding it. And then it was about October, the beginning of November, the water had got cold and, the, you know, and so I pulled out my sheepskin boots that I'd brought from Australia and I was on the beach pulling the boots on and I go, shh. I got goosebumps again. You know? <laughs> I went, oh my God, there are no sheepskin boots in America. And one in two Australians had some sort of sheepskin footwear, you know. So I just thought, man, I'm going to be instant millionaire. <laughs> <clears throat> you know? so, so my buddy and I, you know, we said, you know, let's go into business. So I got back to the house and, and we did some research and called up a manufacturer in Western Australia and bought six pairs of samples and, uh, you know, we got him a couple of, you know, about a week later, and uh, Doug was going to be the salesman. I was terrified of sales. <laughs> what was your starting? How much money did you have to start? Well, we had, we had to borrow 500 bucks. There you go, for 500 the, bucks. For the See, that's all you need. <laughs> all, all you need is 500 bucks, a billion dollar brand. Yeah. No problem. And uh, anyway, Doug. Yeah, came back after a week or two on the road. We had like 150 business cards from all of these you know, shoe retailers and not a single order. And he said, Brian, they, they, they tell me I'm crazy trying to sell sheepskin in California. <laughs> but I knew he was, you know, I knew that I understood the logic, but it was wrong because Australia's climate's exactly like California. And so when you're an entrepreneur, you have to sort of pivot. Every time you hit a wall, you've got to figure out a way around it, under it, mm -hmm. over it, whatever. I call it pivoting. Yeah. And so I pivoted and thought, well, how come all my friends up at Malibu think this is the best idea in the world? And it struck me, oh, my God, they all surf and they all been down to Australia on a surf trip and they brought four or five pairs of boots back for their buddies. So within the surf community, Ugg was, you know, well, the sheepskin boots, not the brand, but the sheepskin boots were really well known. Mm -hmm. And so we just decided, okay, let's switch gears and we'll go after the surf shop. So, you know. That was a demographic you wanted to go after. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so Doug, it was like the easy, easy, easy entry, right? Right. Sure. Low hanging fruit. Yeah. So, so 
Doug took San Fernando Valley and I took, you know, the beaches from, from Malibu down to Mexico, basically. That's a good route. Yeah. And I remember first shot was Con Surfboards in Santa Monica and I walked in with my you know, little samples and he goes, oh my God, sheepskin boots, man, they're great. You know, my friends all got them. They rave about them. What are you doing with them? I said, well, I'm thinking of importing them into America. Oh man, you're going to make a fortune. Those things are so fantastic. You know, and this happened every shop I went into from, you know, Santa Monica all the way down through, you know, Newport, Laguna, you know, San Diego. And Doug was getting the same reaction in the valley. So we, we, uh, met back at my little house in Santa Monica and said, shit, you know, we're going to, you know, going to be instant millionaires, you know, <laughs> we, we need some inventory, you right. know, and, uh, it, we never thought that, you know, we hadn't asked for an order. Because I mean, we right. didn't we didn't have any industry. Yeah. What, what, what was the point? You know, people right. were just patting you on the back, yeah. telling you, "Yeah, that's yeah. a great idea." Yeah. So we we you've heard that saying that once you start out on a path, the universe will conspire to work with you. Absolutely, it's, it's, it's ancient. It's, it's thousands of years old. Well, we were talking about needing investors, and my roommate overheard us, and he says, "Oh, there's some guys at my office, you know, looking for investments." And so just like that, without writing a business plan, we raised 20 grand, which really? wow. in today's terms is about 70 grand, you know? Were they, were they, they're all from Southern California too? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's just, they, they had other interests that were throwing off a lot of cash. They needed to spend the cash sure. somewhere. And so we, uh, you know, got the 20 grand and we sent it down to uh, the, the factory and ordered 500 pairs of boots. And, uh, they arrived about, a month later, so it's now the you know, middle and end of November, and uh, so we, Doug and I, loaded up our cars. Yeah, <laughs> he went out to the valley. I took the same store. You do whatever you got to do went, when you're went, when went you're down, starting out. Yeah. Whatever the fuck you have to do, load it up and make it happen. That's exactly what we did. So we went down to you know, I went back to Con Surfboard, and he goes, "Oh, well done, man, but you're going to make a fortune." But you know, we couldn't sell them in our store. We just sell surfboards and trunks and. Sandals, and but but don't worry, you're going to make a fortune. Just, <laughs> don't worry about it. But you, you can't come just, in here. Just went, oh shit, you know. And I went up to the next one. Oh, well done, Brian. But you know, we just sell surfboards and bikinis and trunks. Yeah, they're way too expensive for us. You you should try the shoe stores. And this happened all the way down the coast. And same for Doug. And we met back at my little house in Santa Monica again at the end of the weekend. You know, our first year's sales. For Ugg was 28 pairs. 28 pairs. 28 pairs. It turned out to be exactly a thousand dollars. That's incredible. A fluke. But, but, you know, as disappointing as that was, um, it, it sort of set up a theme for me that, that I eventually wrote about in the book, you know, the birth of a brand. And that is that you can't give birth to adults, right? right? Every business, every sitcom on TV, every, hamburger joint you know every every you know butcher's shop starts with someone conceiving it first mm -hmm. and then taking action as like buying the first product like the birth of ug was buying six pairs of samples sure and uh it's the action that's the hard part because people have great ideas all the time yeah. they're like well this i have this great idea and i'm gonna i'm not gonna tell someone about it because i don't want them to steal it oh man Let, let's talk about that in a second because okay. that's super important yeah so anyway we we ended up you know um when I when I was thinking of writing this book, I thought, you know, you can't give birth to adults. You know, everything, you, you conceive it, you, you take the first action, which is birth, and then it, the, here's the worst part. It just goes into this horrible infancy. Every business will. 
Every startup will, and and you you just got to keep feeding it and changing diapers, feeding it, changing diapers. Yep. You know? mm-hmm. And now and again, you might get a giggle, but you know, sure, yeah. or you might get a voicemail like I got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so unfortunately, that's where so many entrepreneurs give up because they think they've failed. Right. But you have to hang if you believe in your product, you have to hang in, or your service even, and it'll eventually hit the toddling stages where you know people are writing articles about you, and the first customers are buying, and the word is spreading, you know, and that goes pretty quickly to the youth, which is the best phase because, you know, you got consistent orders coming in, consistent production, consistent customer service, accounting and billing, and everything's clicking, you know. And you can run a business from you know one or two million up to twenty five million in that use phase, mm-hmm. but if it's a really good product or service, you're going to hit the teenage years. And you remember when you <laughs> wanted to be every party in town? Right? Right? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Well, I was trying to throw every party in town. Yeah, it's like it's like well, you want to in in business, you want to be in every trade show. You know, across the country, you want to be in every big box retailer or every big distribution thing, and it it can kill you instantly. Success can be a a killer. And so it's a super dangerous phase when you get to teenage years, but eventually you mature and it becomes a manageable business. But that was the life cycle that, you know, that led me to write the book, and and it's turned out to be really impactful for so many entrepreneurs. Yeah, no, I like that too because you, you can even think about that like for the... With the trees too, like I mean, you can plant a tree, and then it's not going to, you know, put out the fruit that you want for in the first year, yeah, first two years. Absolutely. They say it's going to take three, four. Though some of these avocado trees that you have, I mean, they're not putting out the avocados you want until year eight. That's and, right. You know, so yeah, you, you have to make sure that you're okay yeah. going through and trusting that process that you have to go through. It, and it is a process, and it's so natural. It's it's part of nature. Yeah. You know, business is exactly it, it's growth. You know? Yeah. Look look at we're we're sitting here on on a you know, butcher's shop that was started or grocery shop that started in the 50s, you know, yeah, yeah. You know 60, 70, 50s. 70 years ago. I mean, right. you know, the, the, those roots are so deep that it's going to be impossible to sort of, you'd have to make a catastrophic bad decision of, sure. to screw it up. Right. You know? Absolutely. And I'm sure I'm capable of doing that, but I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll try to keep it at a minimum. I'll try to say something yeah. <laughs> before yeah. that happens. If I'm doing that, just uh, please let me know. I so will. I, uh, I will. Brutal honesty is how we roll. us real quick. Yeah. No, I get it though. That's, um, you know, we talk about the process a lot and it's this instant gratification that people want a lot of times that we, yeah. it's, there's not a lot of um, substance behind that. So that instant gratification is not as fulfilling as yeah. when you do something for the longevity. And like, then you see that thing grow, like you're saying, that the little infant turning into the kid and yeah. turning into the teenager. It's like, yeah. man, this is like, you can sit back and hopefully you were able to take that time yeah. and, and look and say, man, look what we're doing. How, yeah. how yeah. cool is this? And, and while we're on that, you know, this is a really good warning for everybody listening. Yeah. We, we, we're bombarded on, on the internet right now with all these, Hey, I just made $4 million. I can teach you how to do the same, you know? And, and I made it in three weeks, <laughs> right? And, and you, you, you feel so inadequate that you're not as clever as they are. Because right. they made you know three or four million dollars in three weeks, but what they're not telling you is that they failed for fifteen years yes. and learned the ropes, right. and, and then suddenly one thing they did clicked and it worked, and they made four million dollars in three weeks. You know, but you know, you, you, 
you've got to put in the, the time and the effort and build the roots. Otherwise, because if, if a guy did that in three weeks and didn't have a history, he'd lose it in five weeks. And, Absolutely. And he'd not even know why he made it in the first place. So, so don't be, um, don't feel inadequate that you know you get bombarded by all these these brilliant business people. That's bullshit. It is bullshit. You know, it's total bullshit. So just just relax and just keep doing your thing day by day. Well, you have to appreciate the grind. You yeah, know, and that, those are the things that it's so hard when you're getting sued and you're trying to find a way to right. pay for attorneys and oh. trying to get insurance coverage. You know, for our restaurant and trying to fit. How do I keep this business open? Yeah, you know, and those are the things. But if you don't go. And put yourself out there like you did. And you were willing to go to the trade shows, yeah. you know, with a product that there was no category for. Yeah. I mean, talk about the, because that's like the hustle side. Where yeah. you were willing to go and you would be stationed next to the bathroom. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, at the beginning it was exactly like that. And I felt, I was always so embarrassed wheeling sheepskin boots into a action sports California trade show, you know, where it's full of bikinis and, you know, uh, which that, which that scenery isn't bad either. Yeah, yeah. it was great. <laughs> it was great. And just on that subject, you know, when I started, aerobics had just begun. So, uh, that, yeah. so with all these models with these really tight bodies, you know, <laughs> nice. walking around, you know, modeling the swimsuits <laughs> and stuff, it was a fun environment, right? right. Cause I was in my late twenties and, you know, perfect. and, uh, but yeah, I you know wheeling sheepskin boots into all these palm trees and sun was just a joke. But right. but you have to do it, you know. I mean, you dealt with rejection on a level that I just can't even imagine. Yeah. You know, Phil Knight with Nike. There's, I mean, he probably dealt with rejection. But what you were trying to do, create a new category to create yeah. a new brand. Yeah. It seemed incredible to you because you grew up in Australia. You grew up yeah. with it. Yeah. And, and every, you're trying and, to bring it to America. And I knew how big it would, it should be. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of Phil Knight, you know, I read his book, um, called Shoe Dog recently. And we were just talking about you can't give birth to adults. Mm -hmm. Would you believe the five, the first five years sales of ARG was greater than the first five years sales of Nike? No way. Really? Yeah, they went through oh everything my. I went through. Really? The, the rejection, the, the, those will never work. You know, the, the, they're not good running shoes. They'll never, they'll never work in America. Right. So he went through the same thing I did. Yeah. That's, uh, that's amazing. I mean, again, it just goes back to that, that process, just trusting that process and knowing that if you believe in it, you knew there was a market for it. You just had to figure out how do I, like, how do I show these people that they really do need these boots? Yeah. How do I, you know, these these surfers, these guys? Because yeah. you been, and you were surfing your whole life, right? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. And th that really is a good point. To, it leads into the fact that every good entrepreneur has to have some level of ignorance, <laughs> right? A lot of ignorance. Because otherwise, <laughs> not a lot, but some some Enough. level of it, yeah. yeah. Because otherwise, you wouldn't start, you know. Um, and the ignorance I had was I didn't understand that Americans didn't understand sheepskin. Like in Australia, you're born with sheepskin knowledge. Right? Sure. And uh, we know in Australia that you can't rip it. It's the most rugged material there is. Uh, you can get it wet, but it still keeps you warm even when it's wet. Because uh, it, you know, it, when it's dry, it insulates, so your foot stays at foot temperature. You, know, you can be 110 degrees outside or minus 20 outside. Your foot's always going to be at foot temperature. And you know, in America, that's oh, it's hot, it's prickly. You know, we can't wear it in the wet because it's you know we got mud and slush here. You know, and and that was the biggest. It took me years to figure it out. But it, how did you figure it out? 
I was at a trade show um, in Las Vegas at a ski show. And I'd That's been, funny. I'd been That's there. That's funny in and of itself. Yeah, really. <laughs> a ski show in Las Vegas. I'd, <laughs> I'd been there for five days and, and had written almost no orders. And and it was on the last day this woman came by and, and I, uh, you know, she owned a bunch of she, ski shops back east. And she said, oh, no, they'll, they'll never work for us. We have mud and we have slush and we, we need, you know, rubber boots and sorrels, you know. And I got so frustrated. I said, look, take your shoe off and put this on, right? And she put it on and she goes, oh, my God. Oh, my God, these are so comfortable. I could wear, I could sell these as after ski boots. And I go, duh, you know. Yeah. And she ordered 60 pairs. No way. And and that changed the course of the whole business when I sure. realized, oh, my God, they, you know, we can talk about it forever, but unless they experience putting a pair of boots on with bare feet, they're never going to get it. It's such an important, and, such an important business example. I mean, just yeah. last weekend we did with Big Green Egg, they put on an egg fest where they actually recruit barbecuers to come out. Derek did a class. We did it all on Behind the Spoke, but they're all using the Big Green Egg. Right. And until you use it, you you're intimidated by it yeah you know and with you you're trying to tell people how incredible this this ugg boot yeah. is and until they put it on just until, put the fucking boot manager of yeah. the store put it on yeah until then they became the brand ambassador Isn't because it? they told the customer all your rejections everything that's going to come out of your mouth just shut the fuck up and put the boot on that's well when we learned when i learned that was I told all my sales reps from then on, don't ever try and sell a pair of boots without unless they've tried one on. Yep. Without don't, socks. Don't, don't even talk about it. Without socks, yeah. right? Without socks for sure, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I definitely need to try that because my feet sweat a lot uh -huh. naturally. Right. So I need to just do it. You need you, to do you, it. You'll be, I did you, it. I had, an, I had a blast. You'll I, be amazed. You won't sweat. Really? Yeah. yeah. Dude, sign me up. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. I'm in. I went to Boot World down in San Diego and I got these little baby Uggs for my son but i tried on my first pair in preparation of this right. and i was like it's fucking incredible oh, that's great it's fucking incredible <laughs> yeah but so talk whole, to us about maybe like your what's the biggest obstacle you've had in your progression of growth so when you when you're talking about going from an infant to a child like where do you where was your biggest struggle um it, it was starting out was the the hard thing mm -hmm. and uh what remember i mentioned earlier the universe will conspire to work with you well look the universe is absolutely perfect it's in complete perfection and balance and movement and every everything you could possibly want already exists right, right? everything totally exists and i like to use this little story you know when's the last time you saw an advertisement for a refrigerator you look, look at these dumb faces. You right. don't, you don't okay. recall, right? But if you needed a refrigerator on Saturday, you would start seeing advertisements everywhere. You would, you'd, you'd yep. be in Starbucks, and the classifieds would be spilled over the table, and you'd, there'd, there'd be ads for refrigerators. You'd be driving down the street, you'll see an appliance store, there'll be refrigerators. Right. And so, as soon as you put your attention on something, the information comes to you. Right. So this is a spe specifically for people starting out or wanting to start. They haven't got the guts to do it yet because they're not co convinced of it. They don't think they know enough about it. When I when I become an expert, I'll start. Well, that's bullshit. Mm -hmm. If you start, suddenly the information starts to come to you. 
oh my god, I could use that. Oh, look at this, you know. And it happened to me with with Uggs, you know. I, I remember we were just um, in the lawyer's office signing up that first twenty grand, you know. And on the table is this this magazine for action sports retailer, volume <laughs> volume one issue one. No right? way, right there. Yeah. Volume first, one, first, the first edition. First ever magazine for action sports. That, that, that industry didn't exist. I went, yeah, I there went, was no X Games went, at that time. That's perfect. That's, right. that's, that's my market, you know? They made it for me. Right. Now, had I not started, I would never have become aware of that, you know? Yeah. And, and, so, and if I was doing something like in, in a totally different industry, I still wouldn't have seen that. It would have been there, just like the universe is perfect. Everything's there. But until you start out on a path... You don't zero in on things that can help, and the the universe will will just keep bringing. Every time you come up with a decision, mate, you know the information will be there. I mean, yeah. I I love how you bring specific examples of that working in your life because yeah. it's happened in my life, and to read it in a business sense where you break it down with cash flow projections, with right. all the struggles, with, you know, the trademarks and everything else. Yeah. Um, especially, you know, on, on the side when you're working in the swap meet. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're you're selling a brand that yeah. it you've figured out a way to sell it. You're starting to sell it. Yeah. But it's seasonal. That's right. You know, so literally yeah. you're you want the weather in San Diego to be shitty. Yeah. And the weather's never shitty in that San is, Diego. That is so funny. <laughs> And so, so Derek, getting back to your question, uh, what, what was the hardest thing? Um, and 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 this is the big breakthrough. It took several years, right? So the the, the first year we sold that, you know, twenty eight pairs, a thousand dollars, thousand bucks. So we had to go. You know, I could, I could give up there, but I, I really couldn't because I had my investors' money all tied up in <laughs> another four hundred and eighty pairs in the bedroom. You know, so uh, I started doing swap meets and street fairs and. I started selling out of the back of my van. I had a Dodge, awesome. Dodge van at Malibu Beach. And it the word of mouth was so powerful, you know, because everybody who did try them on and bought a pair, you know, two days later their buddies would be back. And, oh, I heard my buddies, you know, talking yep. about Uggs, you know. So the word of mouth was fantastic. So, you know, we did about five or 6,000 the next year and, and – Another summer, you know, summer jobs, scrubbing boats at Marina del Rey. And then, nice. then the next season was, okay, I'm going to advertise. So I got some kids, you know, my friend's kids to pose as models and ran those ads in the, the reader and, you know, there you go, the reader. Surf, Surfer magazine. And, uh, you know, sales like 10,000. Uh, that was disappointing. So another summer job. Yep. And then this year I'm going to get, you know, models and pose them on the beach at Wind and Sea. So, there you go. So we got, you know, perfect hair, perfect clothing, perfect scenery, the sunset, the Uggs like front and center in the ads and the sales like 20 grand that year. So it was like another summer job. <laughs> and this year I was working, you know, as a greenskeeper at Singing Hills Golf Course. Right? Oh, yeah. Which, you, is, which is like five miles have, from oh, yeah. here, right? We're definitely going to circle back to the yeah. grass scheme because... Yeah, and so that was, uh, um, you know, when I was working on the golf course that summer, I thought, I'm definitely getting out of this business, you know, the ag business. It's too hard. And, and then at the end of the year, you know, the, the first storm came through in October and, and I got home and... The answering machine had like 20 messages on it from all the surf shop owners going, God, we need Ugg boots, you know, we want to drive down, you know. So I thought, okay, well, you know, I'm going to have to get back in business. And 
these ads hadn't been working and I was talking to a surf shop buddy, you know, one of my retailers. Down at down South Coast, South right? Coast, yeah, yeah, down South Coast, Ocean Beach. Ocean yeah. Beach. And, and, and Robbie says, oh, shut up, Brian. And he calls out, you know, these little grommets come out there in the back room and he says, hey, you guys, what do you think of UG? And they all walked out going, oh, man, those UGs, they're so fake. Have you seen those ads, those models? They Ouch. can't surf. And instantly I realized I'm sending the wrong message to my target market. I, you know, even then I knew how fake these ads were. We right. to- totally posed them. You posed them. Yeah. And uh, so, again, pivoting, I, I, I called up a buddy who was running the Scholastic Surf Association up in Orange County, and he gave me these two young kids, Mike Parsons and Ted Robinson. And so instead of hiring an expensive photographer, I just took my little Canon Sure shot, and we went surfing at Trestles and, yeah. and, and up at uh, San Onofre and then Black's Beach in La Jolla. And these are two iconic surf walks. You know, they're about a mile long and a fantastic surf when you get there. And I just, just shot these random photos of you know, walking to and from the beach. And I ran those in October, November, December, and the sales went to 220,000. It's incredible. From 20,000 to 220,000. Yeah, yeah, just because I nailed the image. And it, that was the beginning of me understanding advertising and marketing where you, you never sell your product, right? You sell the benefits or the emotion or the, the visceral feeling that, that your product, you know, will, will, um, give to the consumer. For instance, if you have a software program that saves time, you don't take a photo of your software package, right? <laughs> You, you show a photo of some guy in the Bahamas drinking a martini with all the time he's saving from, from your product. So you bring in the emotion or the benefit in. And I became a master. You know, I, 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 I took advertising and marketing as a, as a passion. And from then well, yeah, on. Yeah. When you see, when you yeah, see what it did to the business. Yeah. From then incredible. on, every photo had to evoke it an emotion like shit i wish i was in that ad with Mm -hmm. that chick you know i wish i was in the ad with mike parsons you know i'd love to be walking down that road at trestles you know when when i figured that out then that was the beginning of the a really good ride for ug it was a lot more of an authentic feel yeah people can feel that it wasn't forced exactly when you can feel that we were talking about it last time on the podcast but it's it's when you can be yourself and put yourself out there and, and know that I'm sure right when you did it, you felt that it was right. Podcast 60, Ari Siegel. If the Dallas Cowboys sold every single asset, quantifiable fixed asset that they could, they sold all their players for their contracted value, they sold every physical item in their offices, um, the value of all of those things collectively would probably be 25% or less Mm -hmm. of the total franchise value. Well, why is that? It's because all that other stuff... All that intangible stuff. That's how all, the star makes you feel. It's its all of that other stuff that drives the value. And there's a reason why if the Cowboys were going to be sold on the open market, what do you think? If the, if the Panthers are $2.2 billion, what are the Cowboys? <laughs> right. yeah. $5 billion? Yeah. $4.5 billion? $5 billion probably? So what's that extra $4 billion of value? It's that other stuff. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, talking about sports, Derek and I were talking about it just, just yesterday. It was, you know... You, for me, my best coaches always taught me that you're going to practice how you're going to play. You know, and in business, there is no practice. Every day we're playing. 
every single day is our game day and we have to prepare that way and we have to prepare and all those details have to matter because if they don't matter then something else isn't going to matter and it becomes this cascading effect that can have can be detrimental to the culture of you know what you're trying to create talk about what it was building a team here for the goals um and kind of you know we have nate here with us who we absolutely love and i mean derek dawson matt savant all the people that we have such a deep relationship with the goals and it's something that i never thought could happen with a sports franchise well i think that's because we didn't operate it like a sports franchise per se we, we operated it like we're trying to build a community the most vibrant connected community that we possibly could and sports was the enabler of that um but that was the the means and not the end right mm-hmm. so uh, I think every good team starts with people. Um, and, you know, every good sports organization, the people are like the spine of the whole thing. And it, NFL is the easiest visual, but like coach, quarterback, owner. Why are the Patriots successful? Mm-hmm. You, know, you have the Kraft family, Tom Brady, Bill Belichick. It's really hard to screw up the rest of it. Sure. And arguably, like, the way the Patriots drafted in the first round over the last, whatever, five years, they should have screwed it up, but sure. they just they just keep winning um, because they have that spine so firmly in place. And for us, um, at the time, you know, the Samuelis are probably the best owners in pro sports. They're on the top tier. You know, I don't know the difference between them and the, all the other great owners, but they're AEG's a great owner. Uh, but Samuelis are in that gold-plated top tier. Mike Shulman, the CEO of the Ducks. Ernie at the Valley View Casino Center. Dallas Eakins, the coach. Bob Ferguson, the general manager. Um, it's easy to kind of execute on the ground when that infrastructure is in place and stable. Do you know that the Samuelis have never fired their general manager since they own the team? Wow. Jeez. They had Brian Burke when they started. Brian Burke left, went to the Maple Leafs. Bob Murray became the general manager, and he's been the general manager ever since. They have had one CEO, Mike Shulman, since they bought the team. That kind of stability creates predictability that you can then solve around and manage against, right? It's so much easier. Think about drafting in the NFL. If you're a Marty Schottenheimer system and you draft for three years to be able to execute Marty Schottenheimer's offense, what happens if you try to turn over to Norv Turner's offense? Yep. You have to completely redraft, re-sign for every offensive position. Are there going to be ups and downs that the Ducks won a Stanley Cup every year? No. But because they have the same principles in place with the same operating philosophy, the same objectives, the same approach, it becomes just so much easier to audit inefficiency and improve around that. So we, the first thing we had was we had that in place. The second thing was early hires. You know, Nate was the first guy we hired. Um, and Nate and I very quickly agreed that the single most important thing in order to get right in the American Hockey League, and I think it's true in all sports, is we were going to make the season ticket holder feel like they were an owner in the team. Uh, and we were going to do that because we were going to ask them not for a one-year investment, but for a multi-year investment. A generational investment. A generational investment. But we were going to make the value proposition so compelling for a multi-year deal that it was almost like if you had any interest in being a, a partial plan holder, you were going to be with the team for three years. And that gave us an opportunity to really impact the relationship because the person was in for three years. So they were going to be committed to helping you make it better. 
And then what we did was we really listened hard. We learned some tough lessons early, but we listened really, really hard. And two things came out of that, at least for us. And both, by the way, both of us are not from San Diego. Right. Um, <clears throat> San Diego is a tough market. It's a tough it's market. It's a real tough market. But, but here, here's a story. So the day that we announced the franchise, um, what happened was there was an American League press conference up at maybe in Edmonton or Calgary. One of the initial teams. You know what? It was in San Jose. It was in San Jose. John Totoro, who's the COO of the Sharks, uh, kind of led the announcement. But all the principals from the other teams were there. We announced that there was going to be a team coming to San Diego. The next day, there was going to be a press conference at the Valley View Casino Center. And Ernie said to me, we got to do a real press conference and invite everybody. And we said, you know what? It's just going to be redundant. Like we just did this yesterday. Let's just have media availability. And anyone who's anyone will be available to local press if they want it. And Ernie said, you guys, you're not getting it. Yeah. It, it's San Diego. You have to not not kiss the ring in no. the way that that sounds, but you have to show respect to this market. You buy, you buy in by getting in the water. Recognize that this is a particular market with particular people and show them the respect of talking directly to them, right? We didn't listen and it was a mistake, but we only made that mistake once. Sure. So we were going to never make the mistake again that we're a team from Orange County or a team from Anaheim and we were going to market or position this as a Anaheim Orange County asset. Mm -hmm. We were going to lean in 100% into the San Diego market, number one. And then number two, we decided that whereas most people would gather their season ticket base and feel like they had that base locked in for three years and then turn their focus to single game or groups or other things, every single thing that we did was just going to reinforce that those people had made the right decision. And those people the 3,000, was it 3,000 season ticket holders now? So there are 3,000 season ticket holders for the Gulls that are now the Gulls ticket sales staff. Podcast 62, Dave Palais. So Lisa Ann, and most people know who she is. She's the, I, have no idea. I have no idea who she is. I have no idea what you're talking your, about. Your search history says otherwise. Yeah. Uh, Lisa Ann is the Tom Brady of the porn industry. <laughs> you know, so she's the most famous person going. So a couple years ago, Jeff and I were in San Francisco for the Panthers Broncos Super Bowl. And Lisa Ann is doing a show for Sirius uh, NFL Radio right behind us. She does fantasy football. And so I said, shit, I'm going to get a picture of Lisa Ann. And I took off, man. As soon as our show ends, I, boom, and I come back to show Jeff. because like, what the fuck's wrong with you? You know? But I guarantee this part of Jeff going, man, I wish I had that picture. Right. So um, I, I was so, and it's funny, I don't get nervous ever. I mean, there, it, it's to the point where I've met all my heroes, yeah. you know? I've been, I had a, day to, a chance to spend a day with Michael Jordan. I've been around oh, Jordan fine. like seven Jeez. different times. And Steve Garvey was my favorite as a kid. I've been around Steve Garvey ten times. And it, nobody makes me nervous. I was so fucking nervous. I didn't even hold the phone. <laughs> like, she had to get to the well, camera. Lot, she had to do it all for me. had a lot of sexual me. relations with her, and she never knew. <laughs> <laughs> it was just awkward. It's an awkward... Uh, <laughs> that I've been awkward. with Lisa Ann more than I've been with my yeah. wife. <laughs> so, it was, it, was, it was crazy. So, I reached out to her, and I said, hey, what about coming on? And, man, she said, absolutely. And she came on, and not only did she come on for over an hour with us, she said, this might be the best interview I've ever done. Really? And it was, it was, it was really, to me, the interview was really good. It wasn't a bunch of, you know, how many guys have you done at one time? It wasn't that kind of shit. Right. It was more about her. How did she get in the business? Her as a person. She loved it. She retweeted it over and over again. She sent it out to a bunch of people. I think the line that got her, that Jeff brought to her, that made her more real, was... She wrote in her book, everybody wants to be with me. Nobody wants to be with me. 
you know, and basically everyone wants to see what it's like to sleep with me, but right. nobody wants a relationship with me. Right. And kind of like there's uh, a loneliness there. Well, yeah, she's being vulnerable. Yeah. She's and when that when he hit her with it, he, she even called him back and said, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot. Mm-hmm. And that affected her as a person. Once she did that, she was different. She yeah. was she was the, the person you care about down the street. You know, not one of those, hey, she's going to come to town and we're going to chance to be with her. It wasn't that. It was like, hey, this girl's now, uh, she showed... She's vulnerable and she's a friend, you know, sure. she, she's and it's uh, the kind of kind of crazy, as he said, from went from a few years ago to God dang, this is my favorite person to watch on film to all of a sudden she's a friend of ours is is, is different. Podcast 64, Sam, the cooking guy. Uh, I said on Fox, uh, you know, my post that morning was a picture of Bourdain. And then all I wrote below it was you never see it coming. And I said that because my own brother took his life um, six years ago. And he had a lot of a lot of struggles and issues, but never ever did I imagine that that would have been the outcome. You know, you can't, if we all had plastic plates on the side of our heads, and you could look in and see if the wheels were turning or how they were turning, mm-hmm. or if a cog was was stuck or you know grinding away, you might have some clue. But we can't. You can't look inside somebody. All you see is what's on the outside. It, literally, we are just the tip of an iceberg. You see somebody walking down the street smiling, you assume that they're they're all good. You see somebody angry, you assume that they're they're not good. You can't see so deeply in someone that you would ever have an idea. And the thing about Bourdain is that for what we could all see, the collective we, he looked like he had it way together. Yeah, way together. I mean, a look what he did for a living. How many people have said, "I, I would have done that job almost for free"? Unbelievable. Just to be do it, travel the world, eat, travel the world, eat, world, eat, eat whatever he wanted. But a really, really talented guy. And if you're and listen to me now, if you're a Bourdain fan from watching him, buy his books and read the books. He's way. I think he's a much better read than he is just from on TV. You'll really get to. To know him and really see his genius that way. But what the hell? What the hell? Same thing with my brother. What the hell? What was it? He was absolutely tortured. Yeah. That yeah. very few people saw. Eric Repair from, uh, what's the restaurant? in uh, Le Bernardin in New York. One of his best friends. The French guy with the crazy heavy French accent. The silver hair that he yeah. traveled with. Uh, mentioned a little bit about they've had some conversations about shit going on with uh, Anthony Bourdain, but never did he suggest that anything close to suicide uh, came out in those conversations. Yeah. If your best friend, I mean, what things do you share? I mean, we had Dave Palais on the podcast just recently, and yeah. he shared with us that his father committed suicide. He was, you know, he had cancer. He's 80 years old, and he got a call from his mom and he was just not expecting that call at that no. time. And you don't see a suicide coming. is just something that I wish it wasn't as prevalent as it is. I'll, I'll tell you this. My brother committed suicide and it's not that I walked around telling people cause I did. Yeah. It's not that I was ashamed or embarrassed, but why did I, why did I need to do that? Mm-hmm. But when somebody would ask, how's your brother, blah, blah, blah. You know, I had, he was living in Canada at the time. I would say, Oh, you know, I, uh, he committed suicide. And then this was this was the response. Oh, my uncle did. 
Oh, my cousin did. Wow. Oh, my best friend from elementary school did. Oh, my aunt did. Oh, my teacher did. Suddenly, this thing is way more common than I ever imagined. Yeah. Ever. I think that's kind of the, you know, the thing that I appreciate is when you talk about something that typically society we want to shun and we don't want to talk about it's those vulnerabilities that open you up to so many different things i mean i shared a story about searching for my birth father and i wrote it on the internet and you know it was on facebook but i had all these people reach out to me that had never met their father you know or they were adopted or they were raised by their grandparents and they're like thank you so much for sharing that like i and I had never, it was never something that I was resentful towards yeah. not knowing who my father, because my grandfather raised me. I was, yeah. grew up in La Jolla. I mean, it was incredible for me. But sharing something that's that personal is so hard to do. These conversations are so very important. And, you know, like years ago, they, they, you know, men were men. We no one would admit that they cried. You'd never open a restaurant and cry 10 minutes before and then tell anybody. <laughs> right. You know, they think you're a big pussy. Yeah. Right. Uh, but thing, things are changing in many ways, and, and the, 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 the suicide conversation absolutely needs to continue yeah. because people need to understand it's, it's there, it's there in a really big way, and the only way you might ever find out something's going on is if there's enough conversation. You know, yeah. the, the Demi Lovato thing, you know, she just... Uh, relapsed. Relapsed on heroin, right? Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I heard Dr. Drew Pinsky uh, on the radio talking about that, or on TV this morning talking about that. And he says, you know, the thing is, uh, you can have cancer and it goes away and then it comes back and people feel terrible. You... Fix yourself from a drug addiction or an alcohol addiction problem, and it comes back, and they're like, "Oh, the guy's a yeah, the guy's the one who's you know fucking loser." Mm-hmm. But that's not true. Right. It's a, it's a disease, like any of these diseases are, and there needs to be conversation about that. Like there does, there is, there like just there needs isn't to a be with, there isn't, it, but know? there needs to be with suicide. You know, was, all I, these things. I was in my AA meeting after Bourdain suicide, yeah. and it was somebody, one of the men, shared. He's like, you know, I loved Anthony Bourdain. I had so much respect for him. But, you know, he shared his struggles with alcoholism and his struggles with drug addiction, Mm. except he's on TV drinking. So he's obviously not working a program. He's not, you know, and that's something that I hadn't even thought about. You know, it's those are the things that people don't talk about, you know, especially in the hospitality business, you know, being, you know, I was I was a professional drinker. I I tell people all the time I'm a Hall of Fame drinker. You know, I'm I'm in Canton. I have a bust and, you know, I'm. (laughs) You know, I could yeah. drink with the best of them, but yeah. ultimately for me, it's dealing with my addiction, yeah. you know, and I shared when we had Jim Trotter on this podcast about my alcoholism, we had somebody, a listener reach out in New Orleans that said, you know, ask me questions and, you know, I was able to refer him somewhere. And if it's, if it's one thing that we can do out of all the things that we're doing with this podcast, I mean, shit, it's just having a conversation and knowing that we're here as a resource, no matter what that is, it doesn't mean that we're an expert by yeah. any means yeah but. it's we have a a lot of it going on with uh ex-football players and i was i can share my my feelings of it that they were um i had a lot of anger towards my friends that killed themselves and uh, just kind of naive to how they were feeling you know you don't when I'm 18 years old and one of my teammates kills himself I'm like you piece of shit there's so many other things that you could have done you know 
But now you get older, you understand the, the, the struggles that some people go through and you have to be sensitive to those things. And you have to understand like this person is going through so much that the last thing or the only thing that they, they have left is to kill themselves. I mean, that's absolutely horrible. Like right. we have to be able to have, there has to be more avenues and yes, it's great to put on these, you know, um, hotlines call if you need help i'll tell you what the person that's going to kill themselves ain't fucking calling those hotlines so we need to make sure these conversations continue to happen i have a lot of friends that you know right now yesterday i just did another mri for my baseline for my cte i don't have cte where we're going through the progression to see what's going on with my brain but it's something you have to make sure that you're sensitive to and you're looking at it and you're always checking out and I got to call my buddies that I played with that mm. I know have had just as many concussions as me yeah. and check up on them yeah. and see how they're doing and, and, and create that dialogue, that conversation, and know that it's okay to talk about. Podcast 72, Mo Kason. Here's the thing about it. Everybody and their mom wants to put a sauce out. Everybody and their mom. Yeah. You know, but I tell you what, I'm a, I'll be for real, for real. When you build a brand, and I, that wasn't my, I'm just being me. Right. I got this beautiful group called Verge to help me, but everything up to this point, I'm just post a picture of me cooking at a cook-off. But the hardest thing that you can do is everybody their mom wants to be have a restaurant. Everybody their mom wants to have sauces and rubs. But I created a brand by itself. You know what I mean? It just blossomed. It was right? you. And people Authentic. are willing. To invest in you and buy into you because of what they like. Seriously. Yeah. And business always starts off with friendship. Yeah. That's what it is. When someone wants to get into business with you, it's because you're friends with them. Yeah. You know what I mean? They, they can go off on a lane, but they, they have to see something. And so Academy Sports came out to me. Well, I end up getting my sauce bottle. But to that point, I'm just, you know, I'm not really pushing it that hard. I'm making some, blah, 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 you know. But I had a friend of mine from West Texas. True hardcore Texas dude named Steve Forkran. Still a friend of mine, great friend of mine today. And I worked at the water plant midnight shift, and he, all of a sudden I get a text from him. He goes, uh, seeing that I just won second place sauce at, at the, you know, Jack Daniels. And I was, and he goes, uh, how come you don't got this stuff bottle? And I said, dude, I got four kids in the household. I can't afford, I don't even know what, I haven't even inquired what it takes to make sauce. I don't, I don't know. He goes, well, I'd like to help you. And the reason why he did that is because he came earlier and emailed me and asked me. I was at the American Royal cooking, and he asked, you mind if my wife, my son and I come up to Texas and come up from Texas to come see you? I said, yeah, man, come on up, man. That's how I am. Right. And he came up. It was rainy and drizzly. It was cold. You know, this is when the Royal was held in October. And he's six foot seven dude, man, big Texan, man. True, true clean cut. West Texas sure. dude, man. <laughs> Deep voice, big dude, man. And he goes, uh, he's sitting there talking with me. And, and I was going through my turn-ins and all that kind of stuff. And I had some ribs. I gave him some ribs and everything. Oh, I said, these are great, you know. He went on, seen, t- you know, went to go see if he could talk to Tuffy and Myron and Johnny and the guys. And he came back. And he was real clean-cut, man. Real, like, like classic Texan, man. He said, thank you for your hospitality, man. He said, uh, you know, thank you. That's all it. He said, my son and I are going to head back to Texas. I, and I didn't know who he was. Well, I got an email at the midnight shift. I got an email from him, uh, or, or, like an email, asking, how come your stuff's not bottled? And I said, I got small money. What are you talking about? I don't know why. I don't. I, I can't afford it. You know, I don't know what it costs to get some bottled. He goes, we'd like some help. 
And I'm like, I'm from the east side of Des Moines, man. So I'm thinking, what do you mean, help? <laughs> he said, I'd like to help you, man. I said, what do you want? Yeah. I don't want nothing, Mo. I just want to help you. He said, the only thing I ask in return is you give me a signed bottle. And I was like, are you serious? He's like, I'm dead serious. He said, I'm going to tell you something, Mo. Out of all these pit masters that I wanted to see, they're not taking nothing away from my friends. Sure. But he said, it was cold, it was dreary, it was raining. You took time for my son and I, and you talked through your turn-ins, as you were doing turn-ins, and you took time from us, and see, and I really, really appreciate that. And I was like, oh, man, you know, I just, just be, you know, this is who I am, man. I'm just Mo, man. I'm, you know. He said, uh, I'd like to help you if, if, if you let me help you. I said, okay. What are you talking about? He said, he said, well, how much do you need? And I said, I don't know, maybe a couple thousand dollars. I don't, I have no idea. Right. Because I've never really inquired about it. He said, can I send you $20,000? And I said, what? <laughs> he said, can I send you $20,000? And I said, man, what what ties? I told you, Mo, no ties. I just want to say you're good. I, I like you, man. I like, I like what you're all about. And I said, okay, cool. The next day, no joke. Wow. I got a FedEx envelope, dude. Open it up. Check for 20 Gs. Wow. That's how I got started with my sauce. Unbelievable. And to this day, we're best buds. Podcast 79, The Murphy Company. I told my dad one time that I wanted to be the president of the United States. (laughs) And he said, no, you don't. (laughs) You want to be the president of your own company. And so that was a lifelong goal for me. And to be able to start a company and then Russ and I have grown it in the last 10 years. We're going into our 10th year in November 2009. So this is our 10th year of business starting this month here in November. And, uh, you know, we've worked really hard at it. It's kind of crazy. People say, hey, you guys are blowing up. You're going crazy. Well, at the end of the day, Russ and I are still in the office grinding it out or doing business development or trying to make ends meet. And, um, you know, most people don't see that part of the puzzle. And, you know, that's our work ethic that we were raised with of hard work and, um, you know, focus. And so that's what we've been doing we have a business plan and we've stuck to it and you know it's not been easy it's been a a long intense ride and it's still not easy but we're really trying to have fun while we're out here building stuff and you know being the coastal world with our pelican and you know having you know joint venture type of businesses like this has been super special and you know continue to have those relations and um you know so russ can elaborate more on our company and what we do and how we've evolved yeah, so Murphy Company is uh, summed up in you know, really three words, development, investments, and construction. And so we have multiple multiple parts of our business, and that's to be diversified, to be able to weather the storm and uh, have multiple avenues and you know really have a robust company that we're able to uh, you know go through the ebbs and tides and sure. you know work through it all. And so on top of this building right now is a um, as Derek described, it's a 15-unit residential project with ground floor retail that Valley Farm is coming in, and we're very excited about that. And it's a, it's a unique project because for the last almost two decades, about 20 years, this building has just gone into a, a straight decline, downhill. 
And as soon as we purchased it and, you know, we started tearing everything off of it, the immediate reaction was, it already looks better, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and we were just, and we're in framing right now. It, it technically right. looks worse, but people, right. the, the point is, is that this is a really unique opportunity to not only showcase what Scott and I and Murphy company do, where we come in, we seek out value that maybe other people aren't seeing. And we're able to transform something. This is a building that used to be a medical office building. Back in its heyday, there was a pharmacy on the ground floor. As many people to this day tell us how important that pharmacy was to the community. And so there's this new opportunity with us and Valley Farm and Murphy Company and the partnership to bring some residential to the upstairs, breathe some new life into it, make it a really uh, incredible looking building from our perspective. And and bring Valley Farm to the ground floor and let's, let's reinvigorate that community experience. I, I've probably driven up and down La Jolla Boulevard here, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand times, if not a million. I don't know. Right. It's uncountable. And the same goes for every other person in the community. They pass by this two, three, four, five times a day. And so now there's going to be something where people are able to come in and drop in, get some meat, pick up some produce, pick up some of their daily needs, enjoy that really amazing customer experience that you're talking about, and not have to travel to some other quality meat places that are 10, 15, 25 minutes away, go all the way out to Spring Valley like sure. the diehards I know do. <laughs> right. And it's just something that's not currently here. Back five years ago, we used to have Jonathan's Market, which was an establishment here in La Jolla. They had really fine food, fine produce, fine meats that you couldn't get anywhere else. Really great family. Derek, I believe you know them. I knew the and, original owners, yeah. And terrific people. And they mm -hmm. just got to the point in their business cycle where it made more sense to close down. And, and you know, I think they still own the real estate. And But now Valley Farm is going to be this new, iconic, go-to place. And... I don't think there's anything better that we could have on the ground floor. Yeah, we really focus a lot on barbecue as well. And, you know, people, I think, like to eat out, uh, be outside there. I mean, like we talk about, this weather out here is just amazing. So if you can be outside, we do our carne asadas and pollo asadas that have won numerous awards. Um, and we just like to really focus on giving everyone the best quality that we know how to. And, you know, there's nothing more exciting for me than seeing people when they come back in and they have that smile on their face because you told them hey here's a rib it's gonna be the best rib you've ever had and they come walking in you're like oh you nailed it didn't you because when they go out there they're grilling it and it's creating that experience for them so they're going to their grill now they're grilling and they're having so much fun and we're all in it together and that's truly i mean what i'm what i'm really really excited about Hey guys, this is Sean and Derek, and we just really want to thank you for listening to the podcast. It means the world to us. We'd like you to go check out BehindTheSmokeMedia.com. That's our website where we have barbecue resources for you to help build your barbecue business. Uh, we also have events listed, so anything that's happening in the West Coast barbecue movement, uh, anything that's going on, we want you to go check that out so you can learn more and get involved. We also have show notes uh, from all the episodes, so anything we talked about in the episodes, you can find detailed show notes there. Um, plus, you can just get in touch with us. It's important that uh, we're here as a resource for you, so please reach out. Let us know how Derek and I can help you with your barbecue journey. Uh, get involved, stay curious, and uh, follow us on social at Barbecue War Stories. Uh, we'll talk to you soon.